Hey, welcome to The Scrum, WGBH's politics podcast. I'm Adam Riley. In a few minutes, you're going to hear a conversation Peter Kadzis and I had recently with Heather Cox Richardson. She's a history professor at Boston College, the author of the widely read political newsletter, Letters from an American. And now she has a new book out with the very provocative title, How the South Won the Civil War oligarchy, democracy, and the continuing fight for the soul of America. One of the book's key arguments, maybe the key argument, is that after the Confederacy lost the Civil War, the ethos it represented migrated west, where it stayed alive, regained strength, and then stormed back with a vengeance. But first, Peter Kadzis, you and I are talking right now just a few hours after Governor Charlie Baker announced his plan to reopen the state of Massachusetts after life pretty much shut down to respond to the coronavirus. What is your take on the plan that the governor laid out today? Well, let me approach this a couple of ways. First of all, um, critics of the plan um, really have not as best I know, addressed any of the substance of the plan. Um, They've been um, critical of the process. You know, they they think that there are some doctors and nurses who think they should have had a seat at the table. Now, of course, Partners in Health, which is working hand in glove with Governor Baker and Mayor Walsh, had a seat at the table. But uh, some nurses, for example, uh, and I, I... I think any criticism nurses have of anything these days, they should be listened to. But it's largely been criticism of the process. Um, Now, more substantive criticism may emerge. These are early days, and this is a complicated plan. My most important leading indicator, however, is Jim Lyons, the head of the the pro-Trump head of the Massachusetts Republican Party. Jim Lyons tweeted that uh, Baker appears to be on the road to ruining small businesses, or many small businesses. So um, I have respect for Jim Lyons, but usually if he's opposed to something, that's a very good sign. The Greater Boston Chamber of Commerce, if my information is correct, um, basically has said, we asked for a timeline, and we got the timeline. However, they issued a very, um, very smart, I would say, reflection, an academic reflection on the report. It's by Jim Sutherland, who's their chief of research. And I say it's smart because it's just very clinical. I mean, he points out that um, there's no specific metrics attached to each of the four phases. Now, the report itself has a, 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 a very uh, populist and user-friendly set of signals. They're, they're like traffic signals. And when these four or five areas have been, you know, red light's bad, green light's good, yellow light's in between. Now, that's very user-friendly, but it also gives um, the, the state a lot of wiggle room. Um, Sutherland's report um, suggested that having some, you know, specific metrics attached to each of those phases. Now, I could imagine that if the governor were asked that question during his press briefing, he would say, um, look, this is a work in progress. 
Some other things that struck me were um, daycare. The daycare is going to be very important. Now, the state has excess capacity at the moment because not all the slots reserved for um, uh, emergency and vital personnel are used. Um, but once those fill up, daycare is going to become a question. And the report that Baker presented did not claim that the daycare question is, is solved. I know that in the AFL's CIO's presentation to the reopening committee, they made it, it very clear that you have to find some way to financially buttress them if they can't get if if they can't get daycare and their employer is calling them back to the assembly line, for example. Peter, when I was watching Baker's presser, I was reminded of a point that you've made to me a few times over the past couple of months, which is that his approach to this has put a premium on acquiring and maintaining the consent of the governed. I was struck by how at the very beginning of his comments today, he made a point of expressing his condolences to everyone who has suffered as a result of what we've just gone through. And then went on to, and then he went on to talk about how, despite the fact that his administration was laying out this roadmap for reopening, so much was going to hinge on people behaving in a responsible manner as autonomous individuals. And like I said, it just made me think of this point that you've made to me repeatedly about how he's been working to get buy-in and has largely succeeded up until now. Yeah, and we'll see if the buy-in continues. I suspect it will. Um, Baker's a no-frill is a no-frills guy. He's not without guile. He didn't become governor because he was an aw shuck sort of guy. But he's very much a what you see is what you get sort of person. And I think that's why he enjoys the high approval rating statewide. He does. He's not a showboat. Um, people don't think he's in this for his own glory. Um, and I know this has been brought up before, the fact that he's got a father in his 90s in the nursing home is something that whenever he talks about it is um, very real. I mean, it, it's, it, it's very real. You know, if I could raise another point um, about the report is Baker and his advisors are going to have to address the T. I mean, the, the T's basically running with very few passengers now. They're going to have to match um, project demand and match staffing levels with that. It's a sort of commonsensical problem. How they do that, I don't know. But Oh, yeah, it's commonsensical, but not a job I would want to have to do. No, I mean, so, you know, the T's another issue. And I, listen, I've, I've got my notes here. <laughs> I'm, I'm showing these to Adam on my Zoom screen, but I, I've got a little pink stick'em. <laughs> I'm t I take notes on stick stick'em, so it's a, um, it, it's a, it's something else. We'll just leave it at that. Well, th those are just, th those are just, you know, off the top of my head, um, 
um, some of the issues that they're going to have to deal with. There's another sort of potentially nasty one, and that's um, liability in general for business. If the feds don't grant it to businesses at large, the state will be asked to. You mean a sort of waiver when it comes to liability? Yeah. Now, I only read the tweet, and I hate to bring this up, but we're, we're trying to get this Scrum podcast out quickly. But it appears that Joan Venaki may have written a column about, you know, um, the issue of liability in nursing homes. And uh, I, I don't want to project onto what I thought she wrote because I haven't had a chance to read it yet. But that's going to be a sticky issue. You know, what is it? Almost 60% of the deaths in Massachusetts, anyway, well over 50% have taken place in nursing homes. I don't know the ins and outs of who should be liable for what, but that is going to become a very emotional issue. So business liability and how nursing homes fit into it is a potential flashpoint we should all be looking at. All right, Peter Kansas, good to talk to you via Zoom as always. That's right. <laughs> I, I, I've got Zoom brain at this point. I know, I know. It's uh, it's taking a toll. You want to know what's really taking a toll? Looking at my receding hairline all day long. That's taking a toll. Your hair looks fantastic. All right, take care of yourself until next time we talk. Bye-bye. All right. On that note, on to our conversation with Heather Cox Richardson. Again, she's the author of the brand new book, How the South Won the Civil War, Oligarchy, Democracy, and the Continuing Fight for the Soul of America. When Peter and I talked with Heather, I started off by asking her why she wrote this book now. Well, that was a little bit of luck in that it was actually supposed to come out a year ago and it got pushed back for production reasons. Uh, the book is actually was really an outgrowth of my last book on the Republican Party. But what I was really trying to get at was the question of why do people follow leaders who are threatening to destroy democracy? How do you get the rise of an oligarch? And, and why are people willing to follow uh, leaders like that in, in America, in 21st century America? And so what I was really interested in was the relationship between, um, between leaders with the potential to become dictators and the voters. And that's, you know, it just was, it was a natural outgrowth of the other political stuff I do. And it happened, I actually started writing the book long before Donald Trump even thought about running for office. It was just sort of a, a, a lucky, if you will, twist of fate that brought it out in this particular moment. I ask that in part because I remember thinking, I believe it was watching one of the reopen the government protests or reopen the economy protests in Michigan, where, uh, you know, here in the upper Midwest, you had a guy, at least one guy, maybe more, waving a, a flag that involved Confederate iconography, thinking, oh, what a perfect time, such as it is, for Heather Cox Richardson's book to be coming out. But all that you couldn't have seen coming, I guess. Well, you, well, that's but that was sort of the point. You could see it coming. If you understood politics, you could see it coming because Trump is himself unique in that he's a salesman. He mirrors what people are showing around him. But he was an outgrowth of a generation of Republican, um, this growing ideology that really society works best when a few wealthy men or people, but usually in this case men, run it. And that, that if you actually let 
regular, ordinary people vote, they're going to create socialism. They're going to ask for government to provide pro uh, programs for them that are going to cost tax dollars, which will cost money to the people at the top. And that's, that is uh, the, the rise of that ideology since World War II is, is crystal clear. But for somebody who st studies the 19th century, you can see the pattern so clearly uh, repeating itself from the middle of, of that era, from the Civil War and Reconstruction. So, so yeah, I mean, I was actually just reading a, a review the other day of my last book on the history of the Republicans, and someone said, oh my God, she predicted the rise of Donald Trump, like it was some kind of, you know, crystal ball uh, uh, insight that I had. And no, I'm a historian. We see patterns, and you can say, if, the, if you see A, B, C, D, E, and F, there's a pretty good chance that G is coming next. Now, not 100% of the time, but you can make some pretty good guess that G is on the horizon. Heather, anyone who follows politics closely knows that the rise of the Republicans in their current um, iteration um, is rooted in the South, um, in civil rights, uh, or rather opposition to civil rights. Um, one of the things that struck me in your book was you pointing out how the, the sentiments that took hold in the South migrated to the West, and that when you look at the American political map today, um, the oligarchy has, you know, strong roots in the South and a strong constituency in the West. Am I putting that properly? Well, yes. Uh, what I'm trying to argue in this book is a number of things. I'm doing things for historians but uh, as well. But for what I'm doing for ordinary readers and people who are interested in politics is talking about ideology and the ideas that are on the table right now in America. And that is that this idea that I just described to Adam, the idea that society works best when a few elite people run it. You know, they're well-educated, they have money, they understand how the economy works. They really have a leg up on everybody else. They are, if you will, at the top of a hierarchy. That ideology was the one that the very wealthiest slave owners, now not all slave owners thought like this at all in the 1850s, but the very wealthiest, the ones that we consider the ones who were driving society, that's the way they thought. And they were quite explicit about it in a number of speeches in the late um, 1850s. And indeed, when Alexander Stevens gives his cornerstone speech that is so famous because it says, yeah, the Confederacy is actually resting on slavery. What people tend to overlook in that speech is he, he says a lot more than that. He says the Confederacy, this new government, is correcting that old mistake that the founders of America made that you know, that um, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that every man is created equal. Um, he says that we're wrong about that. And we're smart enough now that we recognize that not everybody is created equal. And that, in fact, a few of us are better than others, and we're the ones who should run society. Um, that ideology really fit quite naturally after the Civil War in the West, which had its own history of racial and gendered hierarchies with when, uh, when American settlers had come into the region, which already had a long history of uh, both Spanish and Mexican heritage there, but also when they came in and um, 
and established legislation and power systems that set the American settlers, the the white the people coming from east of the Mississippi, over the Mexicans, over the Mexican Americans, over the indigenous peoples, and then of course over the Chinese. So that really that I that hierarchical idea really reestablished itself pretty effectively in the West after the Civil War. And what the book talks about is how that ideology gradually came to take over the American system in the 20th century. I mean, it starts in the 19th century when we get the addition of all that region is, is a whole bunch of new states. But then it really takes over the system in uh, the American system altogether after World War II because of the demographic shift into the West during World War II. And then because of the rise of just how important those Western states become to our American political system. So what I'm trying to suggest is that that hierarchical oligarchic idea, that idea that some people are better than others, has been on the table in America since the beginning. But right now, it's very much on the table between uh, between leaders who think that way, that they are the ones who really should run things, that they know all the best people, and the rest of us, ordinary Americans, who believe that democracy means something else and really do believe in the idea that everybody is created equal and that everybody should have an equal say in their right in their government and in their right to self-determination. So that was really the heart of what was going on in that book. Let me ask you about a paradox. You, you point out in your book, How the South Won the Civil War, that um, Barry Goldwater's candidacy in 1964, you know, was a real marker in the sand about the, the, the rise of the new forces within the Republican Party. Um, the country club Republicans personified by the likes of Prescott Bush, the father of uh, the the Bush presidents, this sort of red pants, blue blazer form of republicanism was uh, replaced by uh, Arizona Senator Barry Goldwater with his turquoise sort of cowboy string necklace. Uh, We have a clip lined up of Barry Goldwater accepting the Republican nomination in 1964, which interestingly enough took place in San Francisco, a western city. I would remind you that extremism in the defense of liberty is no vice. And let me remind you also that moderation in the pursuit of justice is no virtue. I said this struck me as a paradox. It seems like Goldwater, like Trump today, presents himself as every person. You know, he's Goldwater was the normal American. Um, Trump is the normal American. Um, How do normal Americans buy this? Well, I think you put your finger on something right there, and that is that they have both presented to their their followers as normal Americans. But even though Barry Goldwater made a huge deal about the fact he was from pioneer stock and his family came to Arizona when there was nothing there and they didn't have Social Security and they didn't have help from the government, um, that was all a myth that, in fact, he was from a very wealthy family and his family had uh, succeeded in uh, Arizona because of the money that the federal government was pumping into Arizona. 
Arizona. So first of all, there's that myth of the self-made man that they personified, at least Barry Goldwater personified as, as well as he did. But I think there's an important, really an important touchstone there. And that's that people like Barry Goldwater and Donald Trump appeal to voters in part because as uh, Barry Goldwater revealed when he picked up the five deep southern states, and certainly as Donald Trump has revealed with his attraction to the alt-right, for example, while they certainly are appealing to people for their racism above all, but also for their sexism, also for the idea that women belong as ornamental or as wives and mothers rather than as equal members of society. The other piece of that, and the piece that makes it so incredibly powerful, is they also appeal to that fundamental American concept that anybody who works hard can make it in America. So somebody who turned, you know, a, a poor planter in, in um, or a poor farmer in, the, in Tennessee or in Mississippi in 1856 who is falling behind in the economy in that era that is desperately privileging the very wealthy planters. You know, they didn't look at those wealthy planters and think, you know, I want him to be at the top of things. They looked at him and they said, if he can do it, I can too. And this is the, the, the real attraction of the American dream, that you can do that too. And so one of the big points about the followers, the movement conservatives followers in the 20th century and the 21st century, but also the people who follow the planters in the 1850s is that yes they are racist and sexist you know there's there's no doubt about that but they are also staunch democrats in the small d sense the idea that everybody is equal and they too could eventually be Barry Goldwater or they too could eventually be Donald Trump because they believe in that myth that those men did it by themselves and it's that magical connection of that population to the american dream and to the ultimate paradox that rests in american history that our American dream has always been rooted in racism and sexism that makes that connection so incredibly powerful. Heather, let me ask a follow-up to Peter's question, which I think might get at another paradox. It seems to me that in addition to the various factors that you've described that help explain why at least some people support uh, Donald Trump, Barry Goldwater, other movement conservative figures, another thing that drives their support is a conviction that for too long, a small group of people have told the country exactly what is good for the, you know, the, the masses and what is bad for the masses. And they're sick of having out of touch elites make those decisions for them. Now you present the reliance on or faith in a small elite group as, as the ethos of the Confederacy and the ethos of oligarchy more broadly. But it seems to me like a lot of what has gotten us to this particular political point is a conviction that other small elites, Northeastern Republicans like the Bushes, who Peter mentioned earlier, the media, the well-educated, that they are, in fact, a bad influence on the country and that you know ordinary people want to wrest control back from them. Am I right that there's a paradox there? Well, there's certainly a paradox, but there's you're also speaking to American mythology, especially American mythology since World War II. I mean, think of what the world looked like in 1950 or, 19, or the 1960s, you know, when people really had faith that the government belonged to them. So when they're supporting Eisenhower, when they're supporting um, Truman, when they're supporting the post-war emphasis on civil rights, and, and mind you, this is not an easy struggle, of course, but if you think about the 1950s and the 1960s and the fact that, uh, that white Americans, people who in 
the past had controlled uh, controlled everything, were willing to listen to the cl- the claims of Native Americans and Mexican Americans and women for equal participation in American society. Which you know we tend to look at the late 1960s, but in fact those movements are very much afoot 1950s and the 1960s. The fact that that our power structures, our Supreme Court, our Congress, um, and the media and presidents are willing to entertain those ideas speaks to the idea that government and and those what what become identified as a small elite belongs to us. That we actually like those things. The idea that there is a small elite in a far off capital is actually a deliberate production of the Goldwater years. And one of the people who really pushed that, of course, is Phyllis Schlafly. That's how she gets onto the map um, when she supports Goldwater. And she says the reason that Goldwater isn't taking off is because this elite out there is making money on the idea of, of, uh, of having aid to foreign governments and of, uh, uh, and of making sure America is actually involved overseas because they make money from it. And one of the things that really pushes the rise of the people that Peter identified, the ones who are now in control of the Republican Party, the people who have been identified and self-identify as movement conservatives, which came out of a very deliberate moment in the 1950s when they are determined to destroy the regulation that the New Deal government has put into place. One of the things that they do from the beginning is they talk about individuals. They are individuals standing against this empire, if you will, this distant empire. And that's such a powerful story. You know, Reagan obviously runs with that in a huge way, both in his A Time for Choosing speech when he supports Goldwater, but also in his speeches when he's running for president. The idea that, you know, he says, I have no faith in this elite, in this far off capital um, running your life. I think you can do a better job than they do. But it's a myth. I mean, he really always is looking for the stories of little guys who are crushed by the big government. And that really takes off in American culture. And where I really always like to point is to the fact that if you think about the story of Star Wars, which is a mythological story, you know, the whole idea of the the individual taking on the big outside government, you know, that's David and Goliath, that's Jesus and the Pharisees, that's the cowboy and the Eastern government, a a marker that we put down during Reconstruction. And it is also obviously Luke Skywalker against the Empire. Well, that movie comes out in 77 and storms across the U.S. And of course, Reagan rises to power in California at that very moment and runs for the White House in 1980 on that idea that he's going to return power to the individual and take it away from the empire. And the individual doesn't need education. Remember, Luke has to turn away from his education and trust his gut, trust the force. He has to, he has, he, he, he doesn't go to the academy. Remember the beginning of that movie, he wants to go to the academy and his, his uncle won't let him. He has to turn away from education. He has to turn away from established power structures. He has to turn away to a ragtag bunch of people, including an American cowboy. Han Solo is quite deliberately an American cowboy. And in order to do that, he is able to bring down the empire. And that idea, that mythological image, is what has enabled people like uh, the movement conservatives from that moment, from Reagan on, to rise to power. And then, of course, once they were in power, then they, under, especially under Newt Gingrich, but then through later on through voter suppression and gerrymandering, they have managed to hold on to that power, even though most Americans, women, people of color, look at that individualistic myth, myth and say, that is not my reality but they are increasingly being read out of the political system, so they're not able to push back against that. Could you, Heather, just tightly, if you can, um, for our younger listeners, 
identify Phyllis Schlafly, and, and secondly, g g give us a tight definition of what a movement conservative is. Okay, I'm going to go. I'm going to do that in the reverse order. And I didn't okay. identify her before because there's a there's a biopic right now on her that apparently everybody but me is watching. So I thought I was the only one left out of this. No, that that shows how out of that shows how out of touch I am, Heather. Not you. I've heard it's great. You at least know the biopics out. <laughs> so, um, so what happens is after uh, you know, let, let's go back to the 1920s because we're doing history after all, right? In the 1920s, the Republican Republican Party was in control um, after a landslide election in 1920. And what they did in that period was they felt that they had really brought together ideology and the economy for the first time, really since the rise of the Republican Party. They had complete control of everything. And what they did in that moment was they um, they turned government over to business. And if you remember the 20s, they looked just ducky. Everybody seemed to have money. You know, the economy was so good that, that reform organizations disband because they say there's no longer any need to stop poverty because we're all getting rich. We're not going to have to worry about poor people anymore ever again. Well, of course, the problem with that was it was an illusion and it only affected a very small portion of America. It was the portion that actually was writing the magazines and reading the magazines. So they believed it was true for everybody, but it wasn't. And when the crash happens, the Republican Party doesn't have anything to fall back on. And of course, the crash happens in 29. And in 1932, we get the election of Franklin Delano Roosevelt, a Democrat, and he completely changes the American system. He creates our a really deeply activist state. And that activist state does three major things. First of all, it regulates business. It says, you know, you can't simply do whatever you want. It regulates the financial uh, markets. It regulates the stock exchange. It tries to make the economy a level playing field. It also gives rights to workers under that, that system of regulating business. It also provides a basic social safety net. It gives us social security, for example. Um, you know, these are all limited in a lot of ways, but there are, there are the, the basic idea is that it is, in fact, the government's idea to provide a basic social safety net, and it invests in infrastructure. It takes a lot of money and it puts it into bringing electricity to rural areas, for example, and damming rivers to bring uh, to bring services to America. So it does all these things. It regulates business. It provides a basic social safety net, and it promotes infrastructure. And coming out of that war, Americans love it. This is what becomes known as the liberal consensus, because Republicans and Democrats both agree that the government has a role to play in the economy, in American society, so we don't go back to the Wild West of the 1920s. Well, you know... I'd love to end the story right there. But in fact, what happens is a number of people who are either um, businessmen who don't like the idea of government regulation, and Barry Goldwater falls into that category, or who are religious conservatives who believe that this is taking away from the the power of um, traditional, uh, you know, traditional fathers and systems and churches, uh, and are worried about the secularization of society. They look at this liberal consensus and they hate it, and they start to say to people, you know, you can't. We we need to go back to the 1920s. And most Americans look at this and they're like, you know, we love this system. Look, it's the best economy we've ever had. This is a great thing. You know, the the GNP is going through the roof. Everybody's got work. The GI Bill has moved a whole bunch of people up into the middle class who otherwise wouldn't be there. That sucked people into lower jobs as well. So everybody's, the employment's getting better. And, and this idea is getting no traction at all. And in 1951, this guy fresh out of Yale named William F. Buckley Jr., he's the son of an oil man, a very wealthy guy, Catholic, um, puts, uh, writes this book called God and Man at Yale, 
the super and the subtitle is the superstitions of academic freedom and it what he argues in that book is that clearly the enlightenment doesn't work because the enlightenment on which america is based uh says that you get to truth by bringing reasoned argument in front of people and people will uh, choose the right thing if they, you put reason to argue. Not, not all the time, but that's how society moves forward. And he says this clearly is wrong because people keep choosing the liberal consensus. They keep choosing New Deal politicians. So clearly we need to advance the idea of getting rid of this New Deal government in some other way. So we have to start from the premise that in fact, Government does not have a role in any of these things, and government's only role is to promote uh, business, to promote um, uh, the the rights of individuals. He calls it individualism, and to uh, to promote religion. Those two things should be like the Ten Commandments. Those are those those are non-negotiable. From that, we can argue about stuff, but right there, we got to start at that. Well, he brings out this book in 51, and no one pays a great deal of attention. And then in 54, he and his brother-in-law, L. Brent Bazell, write another book called uh, McCarthy and His Enemies, in which they say, you know, Joe McCarthy was wrong to, you know, be as, as in your face as he was, maybe, but... Um, but his principles were right, that really um, the, the world is, America is divided into two groups right now. It's divided between the, the liberals, and he capitalizes that to make it look like it's a political party, when in fact it's most of America, Republican and Democrat, both. It's kind of a persuasion. It's not a, a political organization. These people are essentially communists. He really doesn't make a difference between this liberal consensus in America and the rise of international communism in places like China in 1949. But he says we stand we stand against them. We capital C conservatives stand against that. And by that he meant those people who were trying to destroy the New Deal. And that's the moment that you get the rise of movement conservatism because they're not real traditional conservatives in the Burkean sense of not wanting to 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 legislate by ideology. In fact, they do want to legislate by ideology. They they think they're radical. They want to take over society. And that moment, that movement of this group of people who called themselves conservatives and who intended to destroy the New Deal consensus is the one that eventually came to take over the Republican Party and is exactly what we're looking at now. I hope you just hear that I describe the current Republican Party in its attempt to destroy regulation. In your book, you talk about that Buckley rejects, urges people to reject the reason of the Enlightenment and to embrace, embrace orthodoxy to embrace the orthodoxy of the family, of the nation. Um, and I read that, uh, first of all, I agree with it completely. Um, it, it also plays into an idea I keep playing around with that politics today is very theological, um, that it's almost as if we're, we're talking about two churches, the ch ch church of Trump, in the church of non-Trump. Now, non-Trump may become the church of Biden, we'll see. But um, do you think the left, that progressives have adopted a rigid orthodoxy that is almost as theological as the rights? 
Well, you're again, you're looking at three different groups there. You've identified two, but I don't think you can talk in America about the left because there, since World War II, the left has been divided between the communist left and the anti-communist left. And of course, now that is really not largely, this can upset some people, but there really is not a, a communist left any longer. I know that's going to upset some people, but you're looking at, uh, at a, a left that is divided as well. I think a more useful uh, way to look at things right now in America. And really, you know, and it's pretty clear, obviously, that I'm interested in the whole concept of uh, returning to uh, 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 an America that looks not exactly like New Deal America, but a great deal more like New Deal America. I like government regulation. I like a basic social safety net, and I like infrastructure. And I, maybe because I live in my own bubble, I think most Americans would agree with that. I think a better way to look at the divisions in American society today in terms of the religious impulse of them is that you have the Trump people on the one hand, and then you have some people on the far left who have their own imperatives that they are also purists and also moving uh, lockstep ideologically. And then I think you have the vast majority of people in the middle who would like to see a government that actually works. They like the idea of compromise, and they like the idea of legislating based on reality, not on any kind of an ideological or theological imperative. And that is the question. Is that great middle finally going to go to the ballot box and say, we're not going to be bound by a D or an R, we're going to be bound by reality, and, and, and we're going to take back the country? And that, to me, is the central question right now. Heather, my final two questions for you. Uh, you said that you're trying to do something vis-a-vis -vis historians as well as the general public here. Can you briefly describe what that is? And then in closing, at least for me, tell me how complete you think the victory of the South uh, in the long-running Civil War is. Quickly, for historians, what this book does is, it, it, and this doesn't really matter for most, most readers, this is, I believe, the first book that has uh, grappled with the concept of the American West as a political entity. You know, people have looked at it as a colonial place, they've looked at it as an environmental place, they've looked at it from social perspectives, but this actually says the West must be taken seriously as a political voting block. Now, there's a couple of people who've dealt with that in the in late 19th century um, uh, tariff policy, for example, but this sort of changes the look of what the West is supposed to be about. It also argues that it flips the East and the West saying that the East was about equality and the West was about hierarchy, whereas traditionally we have tend to look at it, looked at it the other way. But the real, my real um, um, historical contribution here is the discovery and the writing about the West as a deliberate voting block that is working deliberately with the South. So that's that's I think what will interest historians. So the the that's where the book ends. I believe we are looking at the same fight right now that we were dealing with in 1860, 1861. Is America going to turn into a nation, a hierarchical nation, in which a few people run everything, which in the 21st century we recognize as the first, uh, really, is the intellectual underpinnings of fascism. That's where Mussolini started as well. Is it going to do that, or are we going to retake and uh, retake the government and regain American equality and democracy? And that's what's on the table in this upcoming elections. So has it won yet? No. Could it win? I guess we're going to find out. Heather Cox Richardson, thank you for making time to talk with us. Thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure, guys. And that is going to do it for another installment of The Scrum. 
Thanks to Heather Cox Richardson for joining me and Peter Kadzis. Again, her new book is How the South Won the Civil War, Oligarchy, Democracy, and the Continuing Fight for the Soul of America. And as always, thanks to you for taking the time to listen. Subscribe to The Scrum if you haven't. Rate us while you're at it. And talk back to us via email at scrum at wgbh.org or on Twitter. I'm at Riley Adam. Peter is at Kadzis. And our producer, Zoe Matthews, is at Zoe S. Matthews. S as in salty Matthews with one T. Also, good luck to all of you as we start tiptoeing back towards some semblance of normal life. I'm Adam Riley. The Scrum is a production of WGBH News.